This is Habwank. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Habwank, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Climate change is the biggest health threat facing humanity. That is according to the World Health Organization, whose Global Health Pavilion featured prominently at last week's UN COP27 climate conference in Egypt. Indeed, scientists estimate that nearly 10% of all global human deaths are climate-related. But claims that a warming planet will cause an increase in climate-related deaths must contend with the reality that in the past century of warming, climate-related deaths have decreased substantially and that colder temperatures currently cause nearly 10 times as many climate-related deaths as do warmer temperatures. If we should understand the threat of global warming as primarily a threat to human health and mortality, the public must better understand who are at risk of climate-related deaths, what factors contribute to their vulnerability, and what conditions actually improve climate-related health and resiliency. My guest today is climate scientist and Johns Hopkins lecturer, Dr. Patrick Brown. Professor Brown is co-director of the climate and energy team at the Breakthrough Institute, where he has written extensively on the effects of climate on global public health. Professor Brown will share with us the observations of his recent paper, Human Deaths from Hot and Cold Temperatures and Implications for Climate Change, and offer his insight into policy choices that reduce climate-related deaths in a warming world. When I return, I'll be joined by climate scientist, Dr. Patrick Brown. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by co-director of the climate and energy team at the Breakthrough Institute, Johns Hopkins professor Patrick Brown. Welcome to Hubwonk, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Well, um, climate change has uh, returned to everyone's top of mind uh, for a couple of reasons. We've just had the recent uh, COP27 meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh in uh, uh, in Egypt and uh, also here in Boston, for what's worth, I'm not sure if you're aware, we've had a royal visit to celebrate uh, the so-called Moonshot uh, uh, Awards for um, those doing uh, pioneering work in uh, climate change mitigation. Uh, it's being given away by our future uh, King of England, Prince William. Uh, so it's uh, top of mind for everyone. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the, the work you've done on climate uh, recently. But I want to give our listeners who don't know you uh, a little bit of background on uh, where you are. How did you come to become a academic and scientist in this field of climate? Well, I guess it uh, probably started when I was seven or eight years old and I got uh, just kind of really into the weather. Uh, and so I'm, I'm from Minnesota. And so we had, you know, we have all of the kinds of weather and we have all the seasons and I was really interested in, in tornadoes and severe weather and used all of my, you know, birthday money uh, to buy instruments and I had a, a voicemail uh, forecast and a, a newsletter and things like that. And so when it uh, came to going to undergrad, I uh, only applied to, to universities that had atmospheric science or meteorology as a major and I ended up going to University of Wisconsin. Uh, I worked for a little bit as a meteorologist after that uh, and then I decided I wanted to go to grad school and I ended up um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to get a PhD yet, so I ended up at a, at a master's program at uh, San Jose State University, and that's where I got kind of more into the climate side of things. We were doing climate model evaluation. Uh, then I went on, 
I went on from there to go to Duke University uh, to get a PhD in uh, basically climate science. And I, my PhD was on uh, global average temperature variability and, and uh, you know, how, how we can separate uh, forced changes that are due to human activity from natural unforced uh, variability. Uh, then I did a, a postdoc at Stanford University where I got into more of uh, broadly human environment interaction and, and economic models of, of climate change and climate change mitigation. And uh, then I was uh, a professor back at San Jose State University where uh, I got my master's, where I taught meteorology and uh, impacts of climate change. And now I'm uh, co-director of climate and energy at the Breakthrough Institute. So two quick questions. I want to diverge a little bit. I want you to tell us what the Breakthrough Institute is, but uh, I read a statistic, you mentioned tornadoes. Is it true uh, or uh, a myth that 90% of all tornadoes on planet Earth happen in the US? Uh, and if so, again, you don't have to, just a quick answer, why? Uh, they're terrible things, why do we get them all? Yeah, I'm not sure the exact uh, statistic, but it's a, a majority are in the in the Midwest of the United States. And it's just, we have the right uh, combination of, of uh, ingredients there that we have. Uh, you, you need uh, warm, moist air uh, basically colliding with cold air. And we get that in the middle of the, of the country uh, quite frequently, especially in the spring in the United States with warm, moist air from the Gulf of Mexico and then cold air coming down from, from Canada. And there's just no other geography uh, on Earth that has that right combination. Sure. And so tell us about uh, the Breakthrough Institute. Yeah, the Breakthrough Institute is uh, a think tank. It's an environmental research think tank that uh, does research on technological solutions to environmental problems. So uh, we're you know pro-human, we're pro-technology, and we're pro um, you know high standard of living for humans. So uh, that can make us kind of an outlier in the in the environmental community sometimes, where uh, a lot of a lot of the environmental movement can frankly be kind of anti-human, definitely anti-technology and uh, anti, you know, consumption and, and energy consumption and standard of living, uh, high standard of living. So uh, that can make us kind of controversial, but those, those, are, those are the principles that are uh, articulated in the ism that is, that is behind the Breakthrough Institute, which is eco-modernism. And I would uh, encourage people to, to look that up if they're interested in it. Sounds good. So let's stipulate for our listeners: we're not here as uh, climate deniers. Rather, we're all we're going to stipulate that uh, the climate is warming. I don't know if that'll disappoint or excite some of our listeners, but we're we're going to uh, put a pin in that and say we all accept that. Um, let's talk about your models. Um, again, we have some of uh, a common um, uh, a guest on the on the this show in an earlier episode is uh, Roger uh, Professor Roger Pielke, who talks about the difference between possible scenarios and plausible scenarios, meaning we've uh, mapped out what might happen. Uh, there's always long tail risks on, on either side, uh, but uh, as, the, as the future unfolds, plausible uh, scenarios uh, start, start to emerge. Tell us about your uh, list of plausible scenarios, what, what you see is uh, what, what we're gonna have in the future. Sure, so yeah, underpinning those scenarios are greenhouse gas emissions uh, projections or, or trajectories. And so kind of going back to what you just said of like putting a pin in that it's warming. Um, yeah, I would just double down and emphasize that, that just all of the observations of everything that we think is sensitive to temperature is indicating that the earth is warming. And so that's just beyond any possible reasonable doubt. 
And then attributing that to human activity is a little bit more complicated, but that is basically, you know, right at that, um, you know, threshold of beyond any reasonable doubt as well, that we are basically sure that increased greenhouse gas concentrations are driving the increase in global average uh, temperature. And so because of that, then we can project temperature into the future, but it depends very much on uh, how much greenhouse gases we emit going forward. And so that <clears throat> depends on projections of the global energy system and agriculture, agricultural system. And I think what you're referring to with uh, Roger Pilkey's work and, and others in, in this area is uh, some kind of critiques of these very high-end emission scenarios where uh, a lot of the climate impacts literature relies on uh, projections of temperature changes that are like four degrees Celsius by 2100. So we've warmed one degree Celsius since the industrial revolution. And so talking about an additional three degrees Celsius by 2100, and that requires this huge increase in emissions. It re requires that uh, basically we go way out of our way to dig up all the coal and, and burn it. Uh, and that just doesn't seem plausible anymore. I mean, it seems like coal is, is really being phased out in uh, and being replaced by natural gas, for example, and then and renewables uh, to some degree, but not a huge amount so far. But what that means is that we don't think that we're headed for, you know, four degrees warming by 2100. Um, but uh, we don't think that we're headed towards uh, these Paris goals either. We don't think we're headed towards only 1.5 or uh, you know, I think it's it's very likely that we would breach two and be somewhere between, you know, two, three, uh, three plus possibly by 2100. But th that's, you know, much more speculative than than talking about uh, the physical climate system, because you're trying to project uh, human technology and, and GDP changes and, and all these things, which are much more difficult to project than than the physical part of the climate system. So, so we're again, we're accepting that the, it's going to be a warmer planet in the future. A warmer planet's, of course, a different planet. But how? Uh, let, let's introduce some other um, qualifications to: uh, Is it a better planet or a worse planet? Of course, there's those who dismiss uh, the warming. They'll accept warming. They'll say, "Look, climate's always been changing. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna worry." There's others who say this is a, an extinction event, right? That uh, the world will uh, end as we know it. Uh, somewhere in the middle is is the answer. How does how do you or others like you, scientists like you, try to figure out uh, how much of that warming matters uh, to us as human beings and you know Earthlings? Yeah, I think you kind of have to look at it, at, you know, case by case basis, and in, in terms of you know what the actual impact of the change would be. Um, you know, taking a step back, the Earth has been a lot warmer in the past. Uh, if we are on one of these kind of middle uh, emissions trajectories, uh, and let's let's say it warms three degrees Celsius by 2100. That would mean that we were that we're about as warm as as the Earth was uh, three million years ago in what's called the Pliocene. Uh, so we're not you know moving the Earth system into a place that has never been before, but we are moving us as humans into a into a climate that that we uh, have not experienced uh, before. And so a lot of people note that agriculture and, and, and human societies really uh, developed you know, a huge amount in this Holocene period where the, where the climate has been relatively stable. And so it's you know, 
potentially risky to then move ourselves out of that uh, relatively stable uh, Holocene period. Uh, there's not, you know, there's no reason to believe that that temperature, the pre-industrial temperature is some ideal temperature that we don't want to move away from. Uh, but the concern is more, I guess, about the, the rate of change and just uh, changing things underneath, you know, society as, as it is now. So sea level rise would be a really good example of that. But there's no perfect sea level. There's no ideal uh, sea level on Earth. But once you put, you know, New York on Manhattan Island, it's not necessarily a good idea to, to raise sea level uh, by a meter by 2100, which would be... Uh, kind of a central estimate, but over the long term, you know, multiple meters. So what I just mentioned when we were uh, the same temperature as uh, what's projected by 2100, 3 million years ago, the sea level was five to 25 meters higher than it is uh, today. And that takes a long time to melt these ice sheets. It doesn't happen uh, overnight, or it doesn't even happen in decades or centuries. It's more like thousands of years. Uh, but still, we may be committing ourselves to to melting those ice sheets over thousands of years. Uh, and so, you know, I guess the, the answer is there's there's not a perfect temperature, but we do worry about uh, changes and, and how much we'd have to change to adjust to, to things like sea level rise. So there are lots of risks uh, over uh, long periods of time. I want to then now let's uh, focus on the themes of your paper you recently uh, wrote. Um, I want to make sure I have the right title, Human Deaths from Hot and Cold Temperatures and Implications for Climate Change. And what you delve into in this paper is um, climate change's effect on human mortality, which I think is an important metric. Uh, you uh, project forward a, a likely scenario of warming and whether we're likely to perish from this warming. Uh, as again, I, I don't mean to uh, be flippant, but uh, many have uh, made those kinds of projections, uh, you know, dire apocalyptic projections that uh, a warmer climate will mean many, many more climate-related deaths. So let's get into the paper. Um, how do you look at this problem? How do you figure out what the net effect of climate is on human mortality? Yeah, so just to be clear, it's not uh, original research on my part. It's just uh, a literature review of, of things that have been published uh, by other researchers. What's interesting about it is that this, uh, that the conclusions of these research papers are not widely known. Uh, and so just to you know, give some highlights, uh, one is that uh, cold deaths far outnumber uh, heat deaths. And so that would not necessarily mean, but it could mean that as you get warmer, you, you are net you know, saving lives. And the research actually does indicate that, that that may be the case, that at least so far, warming itself has saved more life years than it has uh, taken away. Uh, and other things that this research shows is that uh, societies are highly adaptable uh, to the temperature uh, that, that they experience, so the, their local climatology. And we can see that in, in what's called the minimum mortality temperature, which is what uh, this research labels the, the daily temperature that minimizes the, the death rate uh, statistically. And we see that that varies just a huge amount from, from place to place on Earth today, where warmer climates have a higher minimum mortality temperature. So what that means is that, you know, experiencing 100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit 
day in a hot climate, you're going to see far less deaths than that same temperature in a cold climate. So it's just showing that like human societies are, are, are highly adaptable across space in the current climate. And then the third thing that, that jumps out from this research is that the uh, death rates, both for cold and for heat, uh, have been decreasing over time. So showing that just uh, technology and, and uh, economic development uh, are predominating or outpacing uh, any detrimental increase in in uh, temperature uh, in terms of uh, the impact on on human health and and just to to clarify also that we're not talking about uh, hypothermia and uh, heat stroke here for the most part we're talking about uh, deaths that are usually cardiovascular or uh, respiratory disease. Uh, but you can just see in the statistics that when outdoor temperatures go above or beyond uh, various points, that the the death rates increase. So you can just see that there's uh, additional stress, and it's you know basically people that are that are quite fragile and that uh, are near death uh, are are pushed over the edge by uh, by extreme temperatures. But you said, so we're uh, adaptive. Uh, again, I, I want to state the obvious. We have invented air conditioning and uh, and heat heat for our homes uh, so we can um, mitigate the effects of the outside temperature. Um, let's talk about, you, you know, we talk about adaptiveness. I think it's important to note um, climate change moving forward. Is there any estimate? We, we've seen some increase in temperature in the past and looking forward at least through the next couple of decades. Is the rate of of temperature increasing uh, uh, more? You know, is the the uh, I don't know, next interval uh, uh, going, um, or are we on a steady path upward? Yeah, like you see headlines all the time that say you know accelerating climate change, and that's not really what we see. If if the if the measure is global average temperature. Uh, that's that rate of increase has been roughly steady since the mid uh, 1970s, and it's expected to continue to increase at, a, at about that pace uh, through mid-century. And then by mid-century, it just depends very much on, on what we do uh, emissions wise. Uh, so the only way that it would vastly uh, increase in terms of the rate of change would be uh, if we were on one, you know, this very, very high, unlikely uh, emission scenarios. Uh, and so the more plausible ones basically have us uh, at the same rate of change as we've seen historically. So uh, you start off the show by saying it's not merely the change, it's the rate of change that may concern people, but we've got a somewhat constant rate of change. So, uh, you know, humankind has that going for it. Um, when we talk about a, a warming planet, and you said um, naturally, it's I would imagine uh, Minnesota probably is, takes the cake as far as being able to handle the hottest and coldest. You get both extremes, like like Siberia, with uh, with some tornadoes added in. Uh, which places are, um, let's say, as the planet warms, um, going to be better better off? I'm, I might put Boston on that list. Uh, and which places are going to be much worse off? Uh, uh, you know, if if uh, the planet warms, as far as human mortality. Yeah, in terms of human mortality, it's really interesting that it's not uh, exactly the intuition that you would necessarily have. So, you know, the intuition would be like where it's hot currently, that's where it's going to be harmed the most as it gets warmer. And where it's cold currently, that's where uh, you're going to 
uh, get the most benefits in terms of human mortality. But because of this high adaptability, uh, it's not really simple like that at all. So we see, uh, for example, in Nigeria, that there's way more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths, even, even in places like Nigeria or even in uh, all of Sub-Saharan Africa and in the Caribbean and in South Asia, we see the same effect where there's more cold-related deaths than, than heat-related deaths. So it's not so simple that just uh, the hot places uh, will experience uh, more deaths as it gets warmer and the cold places will experience uh, less deaths. Uh, that minimum mortality temperature kind of adjusts enough where uh, it's not obvious. Um, so in terms of, in terms of uh, human mortality, uh, it's not, there's not a, a clear way of stating, you know, which locations would, would be better off and which locations uh, would be uh, worse off. And it's, uh, it, I think, I think that that's, you know, an area of, of research that you, you need to understand exactly what causes that minimum mortality temperature to, to change uh, location by location. And then you would potentially be able to make uh, better projections of that. Well, I, I, I gleaned that from your paper and uh, I kind of set you up for that question because I'll say, okay, if, if uh, hot doesn't mean worse and cold doesn't mean better in a warming planet, where are the most resilient places and what is the variable that accounts for resiliency in your observation? Yeah, so it's very correlated with just country-level GDP. Uh, and so that could mean uh, many things. Uh, it means more access to, uh, to, to buildings with, uh, great, with a great amount of uh, insulation. It means more access to buildings with air conditioning, with heating. Uh, it means just more access to uh, electricity and energy. I mean, there's still uh, 800 million people on the planet that have zero access to electricity. So they are, uh, you know, going to not have any type of uh, shielding against uh, hot temperatures that they can shield themselves to some degree, you know, with fire uh, from cold temperatures. Uh, but then there's three, there's 3 billion people with very limited access to electricity. Uh, and it's just kind of obvious that when when those people experience temperatures that are away from human comfort levels, they are experiencing them with their bodies uh, to the degree that we don't in the developed world. We just are inside and we're uh, comfortable. So, you know, that's just the, that's the obvious thing. And we can see that uh, historically in places like the United States, that as air conditioning became more prominent over time, uh, we saw these death rates uh, decrease. Uh, but there's, you know, there's other things uh, like, uh, you know, better access to healthcare generally, uh, better knowledge of, you know, when a heat wave is coming, what to do, so better information, um, you know, uh, occupational distribution, so how how much of your population is working outdoors, how much of your population is in agriculture, those types of things matter. Uh, and so I think that's that's kind of the frontier of this research is, is figuring out um, which one of those uh, socioeconomic uh, factors are, are kind of the main drivers of the increase in, in resilience that we've seen uh, over time. 
Indeed, yeah. I, you know, I've heard of the statistic of a billion people don't have uh, access to electricity. That doesn't mean they're just cold or hot. It means they're having babies in the dark with no penicillin, right? Exactly. So uh, they're fragile and therefore uh, more likely to die from weather-related events. Um, now, uh, you know, not to get to, to um, uh, I don't know, crude about it, but what are the numbers we're talking about? How many people do do we say are lost to climate every year? Then break it down by hot and cold, and and let's say going now, I'm going to take that number and project it into the future. Is that number growing or, or shrinking? So let's start with where we are. Is it, um, you know, we threw out a number of people who don't have electricity. What's the number of people who are dying every year from uh, from climate? Well, it's it's difficult to uh, to get a, a full number on this because there's not data for a lot of countries. So the literature that's, that's looked at this has to make uh, extrapolations and has to make a number of assumptions. But uh, the papers that have have tried to do this uh, come up with a number that uh, globally about 4.5 uh, million people per year uh, die in uh, deaths that are related to cold temperatures, and about 500,000 uh, die uh, in situations that are related to, to hot temperatures. And again, that's a statistical relationship. It's not hypothermia and heat stroke necessarily it's uh you know other other things would be on the death certificate but that's a lot of deaths it's you know a multiple percent as much as you know 10 percent of deaths have a statistical relationship with uh temperature and going forward how that's projected uh you see uh kind of kind of incredible uh numbers by a lot of papers. So what will happen is that uh, despite the fact that we've seen this increase in resilience uh, over time in the past, a paper will assume no further increases in resilience and no further you know, adaptation to climate, and then uh, use a statistical relationship with you know, deaths and, and hot temperatures and project that, like a huge increase in uh, deaths over the remainder of the century. Uh, but it's again, it's because they're not allowing for uh, changes in resilience like we've seen uh, historically. So uh, going forward, the projections are are really all over the place. You see some very, very large projections of you know increases in deaths, uh, particularly heat deaths. But those are almost universally uh, studies that assume no adaptation or, or no further increases in resilience like we've seen historically. So I want to you know, unpack that just a little bit, just for the benefit of our listeners. We've already established that the rate of uh, temperature changes is maybe not constant, but somewhat near constant. Um, we have historically, looking backwards, uh, been resilient and adapted from the past to today to the point where fewer people are dying from climate. And yet some projections say we're now at an inflection point. We're no longer despite the fact that the climate is changing at a, a fairly constant rate, our ability to adapt has somehow been handicapped. Now we will no longer be able to adapt. And from now on, deaths will start to rise rather than historically uh, shrink. Is, is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, but it's not even that the papers make that claim. They don't say, you know, historically deaths have been going down, um, but we think that they will go up in the future because of X, Y, Z. That's not even a claim that's made. It's just uh, historically, here's a relationship that we see between temperature and deaths. And if we hold this constant and project the temperature change into the future, here's what it would mean for deaths. 
And then in the paper, there'll be, you know, caveats about, uh, of course, this doesn't include uh, changes in adaptation, which are possible and, you know, X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't get into the press release or to the news coverage of it. The, it's just the number of, you know, huge uh, death rate increases that that reaches uh, the headlines of, of the coverage. And so what ends up happening is that it's it's kind of, it's not a claim that the research actually makes or the research you know, within the text of the of the research paper is properly caveated as this is a, a an idealized uh, situation that um, you know we're not accounting for uh, changes in adaptation like we've seen historically. Uh, but then that's not necessarily what the public hears uh, from you know from from the information that gets to the headlines. Indeed, indeed. But as you say, uh, roughly um, your numbers suggest that nine times more people die from cold than from warm. Uh, so presumably, even if uh, heat deaths increase, uh, cold deaths will de decrease, and there's a lot more room for decreasing than increasing. You know, if, if we cut the uh, cold in half and double the heat, we're still net positive. Um, I don't know if you're um, going to make the claim here with us, uh, but looking at your estimates of increase in temperature and your sort of historical analysis of, of, of adaptability, and I'm going to make a, a bold claim here that the world seems to, in general, be getting wealthier. And we say that wealth and GDP correlate well with resilience. So theoretically, the planet is becoming more resilient as it becomes wealthier. What would you say about uh, the future and the prospect for either um, fewer deaths or uh, uh, human extinction? Uh, yeah, so I see no uh, evidence um, for, for anything like human extinction um, uh, in terms of in terms of human deaths going forward from from extreme yeah. temperatures, it's you know the same thing. There's there's no reason to believe that the historical trends would uh, suddenly reverse. Uh, what would be of most concern is uh, making sure that we are facilitating economic development in low income countries. So in sub-Saharan Africa, in uh, India, uh, in in parts of South America. Those are the locations where, uh, you know, the, the increase in heat deaths uh, would probably be, uh, you know, of most concern, despite this movement of the minimum mortality temperature. Uh, but the, it's locations where it's, you know, very high leverage in terms of economic development and industrialization that uh, locations where there's very little uh, uh, resilient infrastructure now. Uh, that increase in resilient infrastructure uh, can can vastly outpace any change in temperature, and so that would be uh, the main uh, the main mechanism by which we could uh, make sure that that death increases are not uh, or the, that we don't see increases in death going forward. So again, to put a fine point on it, um, those of our listeners who are worried about the effects of climate change on uh, human mortality, human suffering, uh, human health. Uh, if we are going to um, uh, speak uh, to policy prescriptions that address that most directly, it's in helping those most vulnerable parts of the world uh, become wealthier and therefore more resilient rather than, uh, or not instead of, but perhaps before we uh, prioritize um, uh, uh, climate change directly. 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would just say that you don't even need to uh, invoke climate change at all. Uh, climate is sufficient. Uh, so, you know, we are, as humans, are vulnerable to the climate. We're vulnerable to, to extreme uh, temperatures. And so even without climate change, you would want to uh, increase the resilience of, uh, of low-income countries to uh, temperature fluctuations. And so with climate change, there's uh, this additional factor of there being uh, more heat waves and less cold spells. And so that's uh, maybe some additional motivation, but it's, it's not even necessary uh, to, to have climate change in order to uh, want people to, to be more resilient to temperature fluctuations. Indeed, you said already 10% of uh, deaths on planet Earth, and we've just uh, uh, probably passed 8 billion people, I think it was this week or last. So uh, that's a lot of people. Uh, 10% of that related to climate, that's a lot of people as well. So uh, we don't need the climate to change to do something about those people who are dying from from climate. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. So I like to do for uh, I guess uh, at least scientists, uh, aspiring policymakers. If you were king for a day, uh, what do you see as uh, low hanging fruit? What could we be doing to help either mitigate the climate uh, or to mitigate the effects of climate on on mankind? Uh, so one thing that I'm I'm very concerned about uh, with with COP27 and with the uh, just kind of the general conversation around climate mitigation uh, right now is that there there's this overemphasis on trying to reduce the hazards from climate change via emissions reductions, and I'm very worried that that uh, could inhibit our our decreases in, in vulnerability that we would get from economic development. So. Uh, I would uh, make sure that we do not inhibit economic development in low-income countries in the name of making sure that we don't uh, increase emissions any anymore. Uh, so, you know, the problem is, is that the reality uh, for low-income countries is that uh, fossil fuels still are going to play a big role in terms of economic development. And so that does entail increased uh, emissions in the short term, uh, but in terms of impact on people, uh, that will mean that climate will be less impactful on people. Uh, and so, I would I would make sure that that development is not inhibited uh, by. And the the direct mechanism is is things like uh, lobbying the World Bank uh, not to uh, finance any any projects that uh, involve uh, fossil fuels, for example, in uh, in Africa, that's a that's a big uh, topic of discussion right now, and so I would I would uh, say that that would leave many more people much more vulnerable to the climate. So, whereas a lot of our listeners were very environmentally engaged, might have listened and, and and agreed all the way to this point, there may be some departure whereby you say um, growth and GDP are are favorable to uh, mankind even regarding climate or particularly, especially regarding climate, whereas uh, many environmentalists are decidedly anti-growth, uh, sort of uh, uh, attributing climate change with growth and therefore less growth is less climate change. Ergo, making us all effectively poor would make us all healthier. You 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 refute that sort of line of reasoning. Yeah, and, and to be clear, this is a anthropocentric uh, view. I mean, we, I am centering humans in, in this uh, situation. And so if you are worried about 
uh, warm water corals, for example, and I just use that example because it's a it's a species that's particularly sensitive to, to warming. Uh, if you're worried about warm water corals, then that's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing uh, to, to increase uh, emissions uh, in the developing world um, because that will entail harm on that species. But I would say that people that, uh, that that's their main concern should make that argument rather than an argument about uh, about human sensitivity to climate, because I think it's uh, pretty clear from the data that uh, economic development and industrialization uh, can outpace the detrimental impacts uh, from the temperature change on people. Wonderful. So uh, our polar bear listeners are going to maybe have a different uh, conclusion, but uh, human listeners may, may uh, as long as they, provided they um, uh, make clear their, their priorities, uh, may, uh, may either agree with us or disagree with us. The, uh, incidentally, I think polar bear populations are actually going up. If I if I read recently, um, so our uh, our listeners who uh, find your uh, observations provocative, where can we uh, read your work and more about the uh, uh, your institute? Uh, yeah, so if you just Google uh, Patrick Brown Breakthrough Institute, uh, probably take me to or take you to my page there, and uh, I'm active on on Twitter, uh, which is uh, Patrick T Brown three one. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on this climate-oriented uh, time of the year. Uh, you've been very informative, giving us uh, our listeners something to think about, and uh, I appreciate your work. Thanks for joining us here on Hubwonk. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be welcome if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about topics for future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.